Well, you can turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 23. I thought last week was fun. Today we're going to look at eunuchs going to the bathroom and prostitutes. So among other things in Deuteronomy 23. So Deuteronomy 23. Lots of miscellaneous laws. I admit my the juices were not flowing today, so we'll see how it goes. But God is pleased to be with us, even in these times. There are times when I feel like it's not there, and God God blesses it. So uh, it's His word, and we not, must uh, recognize all of it is inscripturated and God breathed. So Deuteronomy twenty three, we'll read the entire chapter. He who is emasculated by crushing or mutilation shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. One of illegitimate, illegitimate birth shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord. An Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Because they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, for the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loves you. You shall not seek their peace nor their prosperity all your days forever. You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian, because you are an alien in his land. The children of the third generation born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. Now, when the army goes out against your enemies, then keep, then keep yourself from every wicked thing. If there is any man among you who becomes unclean by some occurrence in the night, then he shall go outside the camp. He shall not come inside the camp. But it shall be when evening comes that he shall wash with water. And when the sun sets, he may come into the camp. Also, you shall have a place outside the camp where you may go out. And you shall have an implement among your equipment. And when you sit down outside, you shall dig with it and turn and cover your refuse. For the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and give your enemies over to you. Therefore, your camp shall be holy, that he may see no unclean thing among you and turn away from you. You shall not give back to his master the slave who has escaped from his master to you. He may dwell with you in your midst, in the place which he chooses within one of your gates. Where it seems best to him, you shall not oppress him. There shall be no ritual harlot of the daughters of Israel, or a perverted one of the sons of Israel. You shall not bring the wages of a harlot or the price of a dog to the house of the Lord your God for any vowed offering. For both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. You shall not charge interest to your brother, interest on money or food, or anything that is lent out at interest. To a foreigner you may charge interest, but to your brother you shall not charge interest. For the Lord your God may bless you in all to which you set your hand in the land which you are entering to possess. And when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it, and it would be sin to you. But if you abstain from vowing, it shall not be sin to you. That which has gone from your lips, you shall keep and perform. For, your voluntary, for you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you promised with your mouth. When you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure. You shall not put any in your container. When you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand. You shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. Amen. 
But remember that this is written for the people as a body politic. This is written for the people of Israel as the chosen race, as the chosen generation. This is that Mosaic covenant that God gives to them before they enter into the land of Canaan as they are on the plains of Moab. This is that second generation before they enter in. And so God gives them his covenant, gives them uh, stipulations for life in the land. What they must do to retain life in the land, what they must do in order to have a good life in the land. Remember, it's about the blessings temporally in the land of Canaan, that land flowing with milk and honey for the people of Israel that God gives to them based on the Abrahamic covenant. And really, the Deuteronomy is just a fleshing out of the Ten Commandments for Israel as a body politic, for how they worship God, but for also for civic life as well, how they live as that nation. And we've seen the various commandments fleshed out in judicial ways. And tonight, we're going to see the Eighth Commandment emphasis uh, in chapter 23 and chapter 24 as well. Certainly, there are other commandments there uh, uh, that, are, that are intertwined with the Eighth Commandment. But the emphasis seems to be on the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. And remember, it doesn't just mean you shall not steal. There's also positive aspects. It's not just don't steal from people, but work hard. It's not just don't steal from people, but also be hospitable to others. Work hard that you may then be able to give to others as well. And so hospitality does seem to be a theme, running a thread running through this chapter. As Even when we talk about the assembly of the Lord, I mean, the Ammonites and the Moabites are not allowed to come into the assembly because they were not hospitable to the people of Israel. So that seems to be the theme there. Um, but you, there's also hospi uh, hospitality included with the exclusion, which we see in verses 1 through 8. And so there are two problems, I think, that we see in this chapter. One is mixing the sacred and the secular, and the other is hostility to those in need. Certainly, we see the mixing of the sacred and the secular in verses 1 through 14. Uh, it's what's called syncretism, blending things together, blending worship, uh, different types of worship together, blending pagan with Israelite worship together, which was a problem for the people later on in their history. God calls his pe people to be different from the world around them, and the necessary result is that uh, in this case, some people are not allowed in the household of the Lord God Most High. So a problem of mixing the sacred and the secular, and also a problem of hostility rather than hospitality. Again, the Eighth Commandment, don't just steal, but be kind and generous to others as well. And so, in Deuteronomy 23, Moses outlines commandments that keep the covenant community holy, by exclusion and generosity. So again, that seems to how I frame it. He wants them to be separate, but by being generous and not like the other nations. I mean, that's a key theme throughout, how Israel was to be different from the other nations. Holy, just in its basic meaning, just means separated, set apart, one that is different from others. And so Israel was meant to be different from the nations around them. And, and this, the laws really are to be a protection for them that they might have a good life in the land. So I did kind of frame my two points under that idea of protection. So we'll first see protection by exclusion, verses 1 through 14. Then secondly, we'll see protection by generosity, verses 15 through 25. So protection by exclusion and protection by generosity. 
So protection by exclusion, verses 1 through 14. Notice in verses 1 through 8, we see those excluded from the, uh, from the assembly. Those who are not allowed to go in and worship with the people. And so we see, verse 1, the first type of person who's not allowed in the assembly is a eunuch. He who is emasculated by crushing or mutilation shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. And we saw last time some sexual violations and proper punishment with them. So perhaps it is a good transition to talk about the one who is emasculated by crushing or mutilation. And so, again, it moves towards that excluding from the assembly of the Lord God Most High. And perhaps in this situation, it was one who was a eunuch by choice, one who was self-castrated. Perhaps it was not necessarily an accident one who perhaps did it for religious purposes, one who did it perhaps for religious devotion to another God, which is what some of the nations around them practice, this devotion to God or even devotion to the government, uh, one would engage in this process of emasculation, this process of self-castration. You're like, why would anybody do that? I don't know, but perhaps it was for a religious purpose. And so these ones are to be uh, excluded. They're not allowed to come into the worship of God most high. They're not allowed to come into the house of the Lord. And notice the assembly, the gathering of the people, when they would gather for worship, when they would gather for the reading of the law, when they would gather for festivals, eunuchs were not allowed to go in and be part of the people in this way. And perhaps the reason is one who is emasculated is a walking sign of an incomplete person. They've taken God's good creation and they've mutilated it. They've taken what God has made and they have self-castrated and chosen for themselves something better. Now, there is some very pertinent application to our modern context with the LGBTQ, especially that T, especially transgenderism. There's a spike, especially in girls who are transitioning to being a boy and they want to engage in such surgery, which is uh, uh, life altering which cannot be changed, which is self-mutilation. And you have to ask yourself, what's going on in one's life where they have to think even this way? What's going on in one's life where they have to even consider and ponder such things? Perhaps they are doing it for, their, for, uh, for um, attention from others as well. It seems to be the it thing at this time, which is very, very, very concerning. But Wright says... Uh, concern, uh, the reason that they're excluded is God is concerned with the whole, and a and if they uh, and those who emasculate themselves uh, have, uh, reject uh, uh, what God has designed for creation. And the sad thing is, and the you know the the the, the reality is as well, even with people who are LGBTQ, I surmise most of them are for saving the planet, right? I'm not, I'm not saying they're all for that, but I surmise most of them because they're on the left, but they're very hypocritical. They want to save creation, yet mutilate the pinnacle of creation. They want to save the world, but they, yet they want to engage in their own self-castration to feel better about themselves. And the sad part is, historically, statistically, most of them don't. Most of them have buyer's remorse, so to speak. And after that case, after that one engages in that, then they can no longer go back. But God has made man male and female and called it very good. Now, I could go to jail for saying all that. But again, I don't think anybody is going to listen to Pastor Mike on Deuteronomy chapter 23. But in any case, God made man 
complete. Now, again, our accidents happen. That's not in view here. In view here is intent. In view here perhaps is uh, on purpose. One who is emasculated by crushing shall not enter into the assembly of the Lord. But also the second group who are not allowed to enter the assembly of the Lord are those of illegitimate birth. Verse two, one of illegitimate birth shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord. That even to the 10th generation will come up again with the Ammonites and the Moabites. It just means in perpetuity. It's just a metaphorical way or a hyperbole of a hyperbolic way of saying forever. They shall not enter into the assembly of the Lord God most high. Now, what is an illegitimate birth? Perhaps it's one. What's interesting is the word there is only found in two places here in Zechariah 9. Zechariah 9 talks about some sort of mixing involved. So perhaps it could refer to incest. We certainly see a situation of affinity that is incest by law in verse 30. And we're going to talk about the Ammonites and the Moabites. And the Ammonites and the Moabites came about by what? <laughs> Incest. So again, this is a lot of interesting things to deal with. But God understands man is sinful. God understands that there's these situations are going to arise. And so God gives laws uh, to protect the house of the Lord, to protect the people. But he also does protect the innocent as well. But in any case, one of illegitimate birth shall not enter the assembly of the Lord uh, perhaps even to it's not just of incest, but maybe one of mixed marriages. The idea of mixed marriages, that is, an Israelite marrying a pagan, comes up again in Nehemiah and Ezra, comes up in Malachi. For some reason, the Israelites just couldn't keep their hands off of pagan ladies. So God has to deal with that. God says, you shall not be unequally yoked in old covenant ways with Nehemiah and Ezra, but they shall be excluded forever from the congregation and then the third group are ammonites and moabites why the ammonites and the moabites again incestuous perhaps again there's some connection with there they came from who they come from does anybody know ammon and moab who they come from two daughters of of lot that's right two daughters of lot from genesis chapter 19 you're also gonna have to have a shower after tonight's one as well just like last week but it's reality. We live in a fallen and sinful world. We live in a dark place and we long for the new heavens and new earth, but it is the reality of the world we live in. So Ammon and Moab, though, are lumped together here. And uh, it's the way they treat Israel, especially the second generation and the first, as they're making their way uh, to mainly the second, though, as they make their way to the promised land. And they did not show kindness to the people. So Ammon and Moab are lumped together here. Um, we see the Amorites in Deuteronomy 2 do not show hospitality. And so that's, the, that's exactly what we see in verse 4. They're not allowed to come into the assembly, even to the 10th generation, so in perpetuity, because they did not meet you with bread or water on the road when you came out of Egypt. Didn't show kindness, didn't show hospitality, didn't show generosity to the people who might need some food along the way. And Israel even said to the Amorites, hey, we got money, we'll pay for it, we're happy to buy it from you. And the Amorites said no, and the implication is the Ammonites say no, but also the Moabites do one better. They don't just let it be. You know, some, there's some people out there that just 
let it uh, just let it be and they don't want to help they're like that's all other people actually are out to get people and so the moabites were out to get them so rather than just leave it they hired balaam son of uh, baor to come and pronounce curses upon the people of israel this is what we see in numbers 22 through 24 and then we see balaam's donkey there god overrides the whole situation what does god do he blesses the people through balaam Remember, Balak wanted to use Balaam to bring about curse upon them, but God watched over them because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Baar from Hethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. But nevertheless, the Lord your God did not listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. Yahweh watched over his people. Yahweh was protecting his people, even when Balaam was bringing about these prophecies. Perhaps they weren't even aware of him bringing about those prophecies. God is good in that way, dear brother. There's probably some sins that we don't see coming that God protects us from. There's probably a lot of things that we could potentially engage in that God keeps us from. That's why sometimes answered prayers that are a no might be a good thing for us. Because God is protecting us from something. And so God intervened. God turned the blessing into a curse. Perhaps there's some Abrahamic promise reference here. God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who curse you. And even he'll take those who curse. He'll take their curse and turn it into blessing. So God blesses them through Balaam. Even though Moab wanted to do it for evil. They shall not seek their peace. They shall not enter the assembly of the Lord God. Most high, they are not allowed to worship. But notice why God does this. Because the Lord your God loves you. God loves with an eternal love. God's love is different than your love and my love. Our love increases and decreases. Sometimes we don't love. Sometimes we're angry. Sometimes we're grumpy to the people that we love. And so, we, you know, we need God to help us. You know, certainly we have affections, we have emotions, but God does not have affections. They are perfections in God. And so God is love. And so we see God's love for Israel manifest in that he chose them and brought them up out of the land of Egypt. He wants Israel to know that God specifically set them apart based on his love for them. And God enters into covenant with them, even if it is a covenant of works, based upon his goodness towards them. He brought them up out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before you. And God brings us up to, uh, to them in Deuteronomy chapter 4 as a reminder for that second generation as they enter in, that they have been chosen by God, that God considers them, that God is mindful of them. God loved your fathers. He chose your, their descendants after them, and he brought you out of Egypt with his presence. We know God by his works, and we see God, uh, God's love uh, being um, outworked in his great works of redemption and even in the covenants that he enters in with his people. So God loves Israel and watched over them. But Moab and Ammon were not the people that he set his heart upon and I say heart in an anthropomorphic way. God does not actually have a heart, but speaking in the manner of men. You shall not seek their peace nor their prosperity all your days forever. 
So no eunuchs, no uh, ones of illegitimate birth, no Ammonites or Moabites in the assembly, but cousins, verse 7. Not the cousins that are whatever removed, like Ammon and Moab, but verse 7. You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian, because you were an alien in his land. The children of the third generation, born to them, may enter the assembly of the Lord. So perhaps, again, there is that Abrahamic connection. Uh, in this case, uh, you know, uh, yeah, Edom was not the chosen, or Esau, Edom is from Esau. E uh, Esau was not the chosen one. It was Jacob, right? Even though Esau is still Jacob's or Abraham's grandson, um, it's not quite, uh, perhaps that's the connection there. Abraham has other sons other than, uh, you know, he, other than Isaac even, but uh um, only Isaac was the chosen, then Jacob, and then Judah, and, uh, and then the 12 tribes, Judah and Joseph. But in any case, that's probably what it means there. Uh, even though they're not Israelites, they could still be part of the people, perhaps through some process, perhaps even though they're not uh, there by blood, they could still come into the assembly. And same with an Egyptian. And perhaps the reason is because they did have, even though I know that there was oppression in Egypt, but initially Egypt treated them well. They had food, they had shelter, they came in from the famine. You know, God used Joseph for that. God saved the special people through Egypt. And so Egypt, because you're an alien in the land, they could come into the assembly. They're not to be abhorred. They're not to be rejected like Ammon and Moab or even the, the people in Canaan, uh, they could potentially come in. But there still needs to be some time. The children of the third generation born to them, they may enter the assembly of the Lord. Perhaps some time to determine their allegiance to Yahweh. So that's who is and is not allowed into the assembly of the Lord. In verses 9 through 14, we see lessons for uh, those who excluded from the camp just for a little bit, verses 9 through 14. Cleanliness. Brethren, cleanliness really is next to godliness, by the way. That's very clear with Leviticus. And even just in a general sense, you know, God is a God of order, and God's people ought to be a people of order as well. And a people who shower, a people who shave every once in a while, people who get a haircut. You know, that's probably a decent thing to have. I know that's petty. I know that's little, but hey, you know, it's not wrong to be presentable before the Lord God most high. And so even when you go out for battle, even when you go to engage in warfare, where are you going to kill other people? You're not supposed to be wicked in doing it. Is that weird to think about? It says, verse 9, when the army goes out against your enemies, then keep yourself from a wicked thing. I mean, we're going to talk about ritual impurity here. There's moral impurity, but just because something's a ritual impurity doesn't necessarily mean that they have violated a, uh, the, one of the commandments but, or done necessarily something evil, but it's still unclean. But even when they go out to war, I mean, they still must do it in a humane way. We even saw that in Deuteronomy chapter 20. There still needs to be a humane way to engage in war. But even when one goes out to war, they still must be presentable. They must still have some sort of order. They must still honor God. You know, there are some countries that you actually have to do military training for two years. 
I think that would do young men some good. I just do think that. I think that would just get and kick them into shape. I think that could be a very good thing. I don't know that I'm going to legislate and, you know, call my MP to do that, but maybe there's something to that. But in any case, even when one goes out to war, when you're thinking about other things, you must still think about honoring God, even in the little things in life. And so notice some of the little things. Verse 10, if there's, is any man among you who becomes unclean by some occurrence in the night, that could, could refer to some sort of emission of semen, or it could refer to urinating, but perhaps there was no sinful intent with it. Then he shall go outside the camp. He shall not come inside the camp. He has to have some time to purify himself. Again, this is ritual impurity, not necessarily immoral. If you want to read all about that, read the book of Leviticus. Certainly there's other ceremonial laws that come up in Numbers and Deuteronomy as well. Remember, it teaches Israel and it reminds us that God is holy. And we approach God in a holy way. And thankfully, we approach God. Those ceremonial laws are done with. They're finished in the Lord, completed in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm thankful I don't live in the old covenant era. I'm thankful I live in the new covenant era. But it still teaches us that we must approach unto a holy God in a holy way, which we will see. He explicitly says that in verse 14. We'll get to that in just a second. So if this uncleanness occurs, it shall be when evening comes, he shall wash with water. And when the sun sets, then he may come back into the camp. So he must clean himself, cleanse himself, be outside for hygienic, but also religious reasons. And then verse 12, if you have to go to the bathroom. Also, again, the little things in life. So I told you we're all about the mundaneness of the Christian walk. And that even includes one's business. Also, you shall have a place outside the camp where you may go out. And you shall have an implement among your equipment. And when you sit down outside, you shall dig with it. And turn and cover your refuse. Again, the, this is what you had to do when you had to go to the bathroom. When you got to go, you got to go. And so where do you go? And it's what you did with respect to warfare. Go outside the camp. Watch out for lions and tigers and bears because that was a serious thing. I know, brethren, sometimes we get grumpy when our toilets clog. But just be thankful. You don't have to worry about a bear that can come from behind you and snatch you and eat you in the night. But they're watching for that, worried about, maybe worried about that. They had to still cover their refuse and appoint up, up, up here before God, God in that way. So they go outside the camp for hygienic, but also, again, for religious reasons. Verse 14, for the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp. The God of heaven and earth dwells among you in your camp. And that what's interesting is that word, although the word happens in a, uh, in a lot of the Bible, the, the form there, the Hebrew form there is, is rarer. It happens in Genesis 3, 8, where God was walking in the cool of the day. By the way, that doesn't mean God is just walking and it's a nice breeze and God's walking in the sun and it's wonderful. Probably has some judgment aspect to it, but God still approached them and walked in the midst of them. Leviticus 26, 12 speaks about God walking in the midst of them, dwelling amongst the people. And even in warfare, the, the Ark of the Covenant was that sign that God was with them. Now, in 1 Samuel 4, I mean, we know they use that in a superstitious way. 
they try to twist God's arm. It's like, you know, their holy horseshoe and rabbit's foot trying to, you know, you know, what can an altar alter? They're taking it and trying to, you know, twist God's arm. Hey, if we bring it out, you'll save us, uh, rather than trusting in what the ark represents. But in any case, God does walk in the midst of them. God is with them. God is there to deliver you and give your enemies over to you. God had already said that to them. He says, I will fight for you. I go ahead, even if they're mightier, even if they have better artillery, even if they have better technology, I will be with you. Just go to the bathroom outside the camp. Is is that so hard? Just go to the bathroom outside the camp. God walks in the midst with you. God is holy. They must be holy, even in the little things. Therefore, your camp shall be holy. You may see no unclean thing among you and turn away from among you. Now, I was wondering how to apply this section. I know certainly we shouldn't castrate ourselves or have illegitimate children or hang out with Ammonites or Moabites or, you know, have proper hygiene when it comes to doing our business. But perhaps the overarching application is how important separation is for the people of God. We are to be different than the world. And we are to be different in the world in two ways. In how we approach God in his house and how we live as the people of God in this world. Now, the household of God is not to resemble the world, is it? I know this is a broken record from this pulpit and from my voice, but we worship the way God ordains his uh, to be worshipped, the way God wishes to be worshipped. We don't ask the world what they want and say, hey, let's do this. Let's do that. Let's have shredding guitars. Let's have this, that, or the other. We approach unto a holy God, and we approach unto him with reverence and awe. People are still welcome to come and hear God's word. We want sinners to come in and be saved, certainly, but they must come in on God's terms, not theirs. We don't ask what's going to get the most people in. The preaching the word of God does not get the most people in. If we were to ask what gets the most people in, it's having shredding guitars and having, you know, sermons that are 15 minutes and they're all about 10 reasons on how to live a better life and all about how to make you feel better. That's not what God's people need. God's people need the word of God because it feeds. We need to understand that God is a God who is to be approached with reverence and with awe. And again, I made this comment two nights, two Sundays ago that A lot of the music that is done today, well, maybe it's not wrong to listen to it on our own. A lot of it is, uh, it is certainly not uh, uh, appropriate in the household of God because of a lot of it is very irreverent. Have you listened to 106.5 lately? There's one song on there that drives me nuts. It's called God is in a good mood. I mean, all of the songs drive me nuts, but God is in a good mood. Are you kidding me? What kind of drivel is that? What kind of, dare I say, wickedness is that? What kind of pettiness is that? God is a holy God, and God does not change. God does not have moods like you and I do. God is the same. God is immutable. God is impassable. And so when we approach unto him, we are, not, uh, we are not to mix the sacred 
with the secular. Now, brethren, the word secular is not bad. If I were to pull 95% of Christians today, and I were to ask the question, is secular bad? A lot of people would say yes. Do you know what secular means? This world. That's what it means. We live in this world. We are not of this world. God has created this world and given good things for it. But God has also, in his word, ordained what worship is to be. God has ordained the sacredness of his house. It is to be different than the world when we come in. If, you, if it comes in and it looks like you, are, uh, you could go to a concert, then something is not right. If it looks like a business, something is not right. We are not to mix the sacred and the secular. And this is clear in 2 Corinthians 6. You know that language of not being unequally yoked? We apply it to marriage. And I think there is some application to marriage, which I'll get to in just a second. But the language there is talking about worship. 2 Corinthians 6. Verse 11. O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now, in return for the same, I speak as to children, you also be open. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? See, there was a tendency, even in that time, to mix a little Greek with Christianity. Mix a little Jewishness with Christianity. We have that tendency now. You go to other parts of the world, they mix a little bit of Christianity with paganism, a little Christianity with animism, a little Christianity with the spiritualness of the world around them. And here we do a little bit of, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of worship, a little bit of rock and roll, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. We do such things now. Or what has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said. And he goes on there uh, to quote Exodus 29. And Leviticus certainly 26 is alluded there. Actually, that is yeah, Exodus 29, 45. I will dwell in, uh, in them and walk among them. I will be their God. and They shall be my people. And then he also quotes First, Second Samuel chapter 7 with the Davidic covenant. A people that has been set apart, people that has been chosen. The people of God are to be different when it comes to worship. Now, there is a, perhaps a connection with marriage. Because, again, those who typically married pagans worship pagans. This whole conversion dating just doesn't work. It just doesn't happen. If you're like, but I love him. He's wonderful, but he's not a Christian. I I'm sorry. <laughs> Most of the time, that does not work. Or I love her. She's wonderful. She's pretty. I don't know if I'm going to find another girl. I, I don't care. <laughs> it just does not work. You must marry in the Lord, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which alludes back to Nehemiah 13 and you know, uh, in the book of Ezra. And Nehemiah 13 alludes back to the Ammonites and the Moabites and the language we see in Deuteronomy chapter 23. So marriage, yeah, you must marry in the Lord Jesus Christ of age 
opposite sex, not your brother or your sister or your cousins, and, um, and definitely uh, uh, someone in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is important when it comes to marriage. But there is that connection there. So that's, you know, marriage determines in a lot of ways who one worships. So household of God is to be separated, but the people of God are supposed to be different. Now, what does this mean? Don't worry. Point two is a lot quicker than point one. So don't worry. Even you're like, we're not, we're not through point one yet. Don't you worry. But the people of God are not supposed to sin with this world. That's important. A lot of people want to separate from the world, even in minor, tiny little things that may not be sinful in and of themselves. Our conduct must be different from the world while still living in it. As Jesus prays in John 17, Father, I do not pray that you take them out of the world. What does he say? I pray that you keep them from the evil one. When we are not supposed to live like the world, the point is we're not supposed to live in sin. Doesn't mean we can't have similar jobs with unbelievers. Doesn't mean we can have similar hobbies with unbelievers. We just can't sin with the world. We've been saved. We've been changed. And this is the language that we see in the book of 1 Peter. We are exiles in the land, but how are you supposed to live as exiles in the land? You are supposed to honor God by keeping his commandments, by growing into spiritual maturity. And 116, he says, be holy for I am holy. He's quoting Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44. And we're all, it's grounded and rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not to be conformed to our former lusts. When you were ignorant, he goes on to talk about the word that nourishes us, laying aside malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all evil speaking. We ought to desire to grow in the, in the good things of God. We are a chosen race, uh, redeemed by Christ. We must submit to the government in things lawful, submit to masters, submit to husbands. Um, husbands must love their wives. We must bear wrong, as hard as that is. We must uh, serve God. We must not be arrogant, <laughs> which is tough. We must resist the devil. That is how we live in the world, but not of the world. It doesn't mean we go build our own colony in the middle of the bush. It doesn't mean we become Hutterites or Amish. That's not right. You know why? There's one variable that's always around. People like to separate and say, oh, we just got to get away from sin. The heart is always there, dear brethren. The sinfulness of man is always that variable. That's why those things never work. We are to live in the world, but not be of the world. And what makes us separate from the world is we are <laughs> redeemed in Christ. We have been taught a changed heart. We know how we ought to live. And therefore, we ought to honor God and keep his commandments. Fear God and keep his commandments. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. But you can have unbelieving friends and do, unbelie uh, do hobbies that are not necessarily sinful in and of themselves. With those unbelieving friends. And hey, maybe it'd be an opportunity to share the gospel with them as you show them that you are a real person who enjoys those types of things and let's just be honest i'm sorry if there are hutterites listening to me right now hutterites are just a lot isn't that right people think hutterites are a little weird and amish a little different they are just a little different 
a little odd and a little different. I know maybe that's a little ad hominem, but people probably think I'm a little odd and a little different. So it's all good. Hutterites, they're, uh, they're like Mennonites who, who separated from, made their own colonies, that sort of thing. So, so yeah, so we are to be, we ought to be, ought to be, you know, certainly not sinning with the world. So that is protection by exclusion. Let's then look secondly at protection by generosity. And we'll go through these quick. Notice verses 15 and 16, we see protection for the slave. This probably refers to a refugee. You shall not give back to his master, the slave who has escaped from his master to you. He may dwell with you in your midst in the place which he chooses within one of your gates where it seems best to him. You shall not oppress him. We saw the restitution of slaves in Deuteronomy 15. And remember, it's not like the slave trade. It's much more, it's different than that. Perhaps some chose to be slaves to pay back a debt. In this case, this someone is perhaps one who fled from another country, one who is, again, a refugee, one who's in crisis. And so they are to be treated like a resuscitated slave in a lot of ways. They're free. They may dwell wherever, uh, where it seems best to him. You shall not oppress him. And again, that's one of the key things with these judicial laws, protecting those in need, protecting the innocent from perhaps heinous and wicked masters. So you shall not give him back. So yeah, refuge, uh, the, the, the bringing in of refugees is legitimate. I know there's a lot of talk of that, and I'm all for refugees coming in. I just have a little bit of concerns when they're 20-year-old men, military age sometimes, when they come in and, <laughs> and they look like, you know, they could, you know, anyway, that's just me making a political comment when I shouldn't, but that's okay. I do think refugees, you know, there should be a place to bring refugees in. Certainly there ought to be. Certainly that teaches us that in verses 15 and 16. And then notice verses 17 and 18, uh, protection from prostitution. In this case, temple prostitution. The situation is twofold. Don't be a temple prostitute and don't use money that came from temple prostitution. Do you get that application, dear brethren? Don't be a prostitute and don't uh, take money from uh, or use money that came from prostitution. So there shall be no ritual harlot of the daughters of Israel. So ladies or men or a perverted one of the sons of Israel. We don't discriminate here. Both can be harlots and dogs. Verse 18, you shall not bring the wages of a harlot. So again, there's that twofold aspect. Don't be a harlot and don't take money from a harlot. You shall not bring the wages of a harlot or the price of a dog. Just colorful language. Harlot refers to lady prostitute and dog refers to the male prostitute. To the house of the Lord for your God for any vowed offering. For both of these are an abomination to the Lord uh, your God. This happened all around them. And typically what they would do is uh, they're trying to mimic or perhaps elicit a response from the gods of fertility, that they might have abundant rain, that they might have abundant crops. And so they would engage in the act in order to perhaps elicit a response from their gods. And Israel does this. Israel engages in this throughout their history. Malachi speaks about even after they're kicked out of the land and after they come back to the land, they still, they just do not listen. They still do stupid things like this. And so when they come to bring their votive offering, that is their vow offering, what they bring to God, service to God, money to God, they voluntarily do that. Uh, 
it shall not be based on prostitution. These are an abomination. We've seen the abominations of Canaan, but they shall not do. This is another one. Can't cross-dress and uh, can't engage in sorcery and necromancy and various um, witchcraft as well in Deuteronomy um, uh, uh, chapter uh, 18. So no prostitution. And then notice, thirdly, you shall, uh, you shall have protection from greed, verses 19 and 20. You shall not charge interest to your brother, interest on money or food or anything that is lent out at interest. To a foreigner, you may charge interest, but to your brother, you shall not charge interest. For the Lord your God may bless you in all which you set your hand in the land which you are entering to possess. Perhaps the situation is, uh, we see this in Leviticus 25, someone is in a time of crisis. Someone has great need, and the one who's in power isn't supposed to fleece them any further. The one who is part, even highlights um, privileges for their kin, privileges for the family of Israel, privileges for the people of Israel. Just like I hope that people would if their kids need money, I hope parents would just give them the money that they need. You know, perhaps they would just provide it for them. They wouldn't be like, let's do 20% interest or maybe 50% interest because that was what was going on in the ancient Near Eastern world. They would, you know, fleece people for 20 to 50% 50 interest. I, I know the interest rate hike came in today. I know it's what, 1.5, that's the base mark, uh, the, the base right now, and it's probably going to go higher. But 20 to 50% was what they had in the ancient Near Eastern world. And so they're not supposed to fleece their fellow brethren. They're not supposed to go, look at this guy in need. I better, you know, take more from him. Again, it is to protect those who are in need. Certainly a foreigner, you can engage. Perhaps it's international trade. Uh, you can uh, have some interest there. So it's not an outright prohibition on the idea of interest. Perhaps it's the gen again, it's the general principle of care for those in need and a protection against greediness. Again, even when you charge interest, do it in a good, legitimate, fair type of way. So interest is okay, interest is fine. It just ought to be fair. Um, I know some of us perhaps don't think that's very fair, but it ought to be fair. So to a foreigner, you may charge, but to a brother, you shall not charge interest. And notice, all of it's from God. The Lord your God may bless you in all to which you set your hand in the land which you are entering to possess. Deuteronomy 14 and 15 highlighted the generosity that the people are supposed to have because God has been generous with them. The Lord blesses you, now bless others. All of what we have, brethren, is from God. And as Ecclesiastes does say, both adversity and prosperity come from God most high. So protection from greed. Fourthly, notice protection from delayed vows. We saw this in Ecclesiastes 5. Uh, the preacher was alluding back to this section here. And there it was, don't be rash, don't be willy-nilly, don't be casual. And the same thing is true here, verses 21 through 23. And perhaps there is some connection with what came before. Maybe someone does vow to lend money to someone and they don't fulfill it. Uh, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not delay and to pay for it. The Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be sin to you. But it would be better to abstain from vowing, it shall not be sin to you. That which is gone from your lips, you shall keep and perform 
for you voluntarily, you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God that you promised with your mouth. So let your yes. So if you say you're going to do it, just do it. But it's better not to vow at all. Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 33. Not an outright prohibition, but cautiousness when it comes to making vows. The problem in the, with the Pharisees is they were just making vows left, right, and center. The problem when you, problem when you do that is you're not going to keep them all and you're going to come under sin. So let your yes be yes, let your no be no. Do not lie, do not cheat, do not steal, do not delay in paying your vow. And then finally, protection from thievery, verses 24 and 25. Notice, you can enjoy your neighbor's vineyard. When you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure, but you shall not put any in your container. You can enjoy it. You can grab a few off the vine and grab a little snack on the way to church if you want. This is what the Lord Jesus does. They pluck, they pluck, they pluck the heads of grain in Matthew 12, Mark's 2, and Luke chapter 6. And the Pharisees get their being a bonnet over that thing. He's working on the Sabbath. They're just having a snack. They're having breakfast on the way. You can have breakfast uh, as you're making your way. God is not a taskmaster that way. So, I mean, <laughs> the Pharisees were the ones who, you know, strained, you know, you strained the gnats while swallowing a camel. They had no mercy on the Lord's, on the, on the Sabbath, not the Lord's day, but on the Sabbath. And uh, so Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man to enjoy and have blessing on that day. But in any case, the one who, you know, the neighbors, the one who has the vineyard, let the poor, let the people enjoy, let the people glean a little bit. But the gleaners, the poor are not supposed to steal. When you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. You may enjoy, you may participate, you may have good things, but you shall not steal your neighbor's crop. It is his, it is what God has given unto them, it is what God has provided for him, but he is being generous by letting you enjoy of that, or ought to, in, the, in this case, ought to enjoy, let them enjoy uh, the grapes and the grain without stealing. Now, I do think one key application that we can draw from this section is we just see how the Eighth Commandment applies. You all know the Eighth Commandment is you shall not steal. It's good to know what all the commandments are. So when I say what the Eighth Commandment is, or the Ninth Commandment is, you know what they are. The Eighth Commandment is you shall not steal. And I think the application is, again, don't steal, but hard work and generosity. Ephesians 4 speaks about this very thing for the new covenant people as the new creation people, how we live as in this world, but not of the world. We ought to work hard. We ought not to fleece people. We ought to pay good wages. We ought to pay our debts. We ought to pay our taxes. We ought to, you know, be able to lend freely, but also those who received the lending ought to lend it or to pay it back quickly. There ought to be a you know, mutual reciprocity that is there. It doesn't always happen because, again, we're sinful people. We don't care. We think of ourselves. We beat, take advantage of people, and we shouldn't. But how the members of God ought to live, and this is how we can serve God. Let him who stole steal no longer, verse 28, Ephesians 4. Rather, let him labor working with his hands, what is good? Don't steal from people. Don't take from them 
If you have an employer, don't take time from them by you know you're playing on your phones. Don't do that sort of thing. That happens a lot too. It's not just stealing that way. It's stealing their time. You want to make them so much money. You want to be the best worker you can be. As you know, God says when He talks with the, the master or the masters through Paul, He says, "You know, work hard as if unto the Lord." We ought to work hard. We ought to be the best employees. We ought to be the best employers. We ought to be the best of the things God has called us to do. Let him labor. Don't steal. Don't be idle. Don't be lazy. That he may then have something to give to him who has need. Not just providing for your family, not just providing for one's outward need, but also providing for others as well. So I think we see there in some interesting ways how you know the fourth the, the eighth commandment applies to us help those in need uh certainly it's uh, uh make sure they're okay but also those who are in need ought to work hard ought to you know, not steal ought to you know pay back what they have been given so some good application i think there from the eighth commandment just read the westminster larger catechism for some more of a detailed fleshing out from the Westminster divines on what the eighth commandment is and how it applies. So yeah, don't steal, work hard, be generous uh, because it is all God's anyway that he has given unto us. And we just give right back to him. Now, one concluding encouragement, one concluding theological encouragement that we see in this section has to do with all of God's goodness towards us. God loves, God walks in your midst, and God blesses. That is the basis for why the people ought to worship him the way he's asked, why the people ought to be considerate even when they do their business, and why people ought to be generous, because it's all based on what God has done for them. God loves his people and dwells with them. And thankfully, God dwells with all sorts of people, all sorts of sinners that are redeemed. We see this manifest in the Lord Jesus Christ. In him, the fullness of the deity dwelt. What great wisdom that it was in the person of the Son that there is uh, two natures fully God and fully man. We cannot know God comprehensively. We cannot know God in his essence. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he declares him. How we know God is in the Lord Jesus Christ. How man knows God is in the, the second person taking on human flesh and that second person and his incarnation dwelling amongst us and dwelling among sinners and tax collectors to redeem sinners and tax collectors by virtue of the new covenant. And there are so many gracious examples of forgiveness and mercy to those or those that are like what we've seen in Deuteronomy 23, Ruth, the Moabite, God's salvation of her and through her, the, the Messiah would come. 
We see thieves redeemed. I know the thief on the cross certainly wasn't uh, just a thief, but he was a terrorist, but God saved him. But also one of the blessings of the new covenant is that eunuchs can be brought into the assembly of the Lord. There's the promise of this in Isaiah 56, and there is fulfillment of it in Isaiah chapter 8 with that Ethiopian eunuch. He finds mercy and forgiveness. He believes by faith. Philip says, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And Isaiah 56 speaks of him. But what is he reading? Isaiah 53. And he needs someone to declare what this means, which is what Philip does for him. And he becomes a child of God and is brought into the household of God, one who feared God. But when he went to Jerusalem, he could not go in to the temple of the Lord. But because of God's mercy and grace, he is saved by the temple of the Lord and has communion with God. There is mercy and forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. And even those of the LGBTQ, whatever persuasion, can find forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. Even those who mutilated themselves can find forgiveness and mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are thieves can find forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who've stolen and sinned can find forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. For in him we are washed, justified, and sanctified by his blood and his righteousness. Well, let us pray. Thank you, O God, for your word and for the whole counsel of it. Thank you for all that you teach us, even in passages like this about what separation is, about how the Eighth Commandment ought to apply, about how we ought to be kind and generous because you have been so kind and generous to us. And you've been kind and generous to us, not just with rain from heavens and fruitful seasons, but also, oh God, you've been kind to us in salvation, in our forgiveness of sins, in mercy and grace, which we do not deserve, in bringing eunuchs into the kingdom of heaven by your grace and by your mercy. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. And thank you for your power. Thank you that you walk in the midst of the lampstands. You walk in the midst of your people. We ask, O oh God, that our worship would be reverent. We ask, O oh God, that our hearts would be reverent. We ask, O oh God, in our daily life, we would seek to die unto sin and grow into the image of Christ. That as we navigate this world, we would not sin with the world, but we're thankful, O God, if we do sin, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So we ask, O God, that you would help us to work hard, help us to be generous, help us, O God, to cherish all of, your, all of the scriptures and all of your word and appreciate all that you do for us. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your presence by the Spirit and because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be with us now as we go into the world, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.